0: I actually am heartened by the reactions that leadership, both political and medical, have have done in the last over two months to prepare. Uh, But that isn't the end of the story. And, you know, a lot of things keep me up at night.
1: That's Mark Miller, Federal Minister of Indigenous Service Canada. He's our guest on this episode of the Akamemic Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Bellegarde, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Welcome to the Akamemok Podcast. Akamemok is a Cree word for you all persevere. In other words, keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we will discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, elders, and community leaders. And right now, the leading issue is the COVID-19 pandemic. We're happy to be joined by the Honorable Mark Miller today. He's the Minister of Indigenous Services, Canada, and he's here to talk with us about the federal government's responses so far to COVID-19, specifically what's being done to limit the spread and reduce the negative impact on First Nations, and what more still needs to be done. Welcome to the podcast, Minister Miller.
0: Thank you, National Chief. Thanks for having me on.
1: So I'm going to start with a very easy question, Minister. Beyond the immediate threat to your family and your own personal well-being, what keeps you up at night?
0: Oh, wow. Uh, and sadly not, it isn't just one thing. <laughs> and, and, and as you know, because you've, you, you've lived aspects of this, uh, your whole life, National Chief, I, I was appointed mm-hmm. to a portfolio that, uh, that has a lot of emergencies to it a lot of crises associated to it uh, that uh, results from uh, you know historical inequities between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples that have uh, that have existed for for centuries way before even Canada came into existence so um, it was a, a very challenging portfolio to begin with, I'm five months in, and there have been uh, two two components to the, the two or three crises we've seen as a government since January, the Wet'suwet'en uh, hered- historical rights, and then now the impact of uh, a global pandemic on uh, Indigenous peoples, both on and off reserve um and so this is um what keeps me up at night good question uh i i worry about (laughs) i worry about a lot of things i worry about all these the issues that i think that you're seeing on the ground through your Mm -hmm. advocacy um i worry about uh, how we deal in uh in a to with a health problem with a health response and that means getting resources physical uh informational um and uh and financial into indigenous communities knowing that with that is uh, there's a historical lack of trust uh suspicion legitimate towards the medical system underfunding of that medical system and uh and knowing the lessons that we've seen within our department at least with our reaction towards h1n1 which is now a bit of a shadow as an example and uh, you know the real scenario we see unfolding with with your brothers and sisters in the south and the navajo nations uh national chief and 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 mm-hmm. the heavy impact that has had on that uh, large community that that i i think straddles three states and you know if you look at those numbers um, those are very alarming numbers and, and I think you can look at how that would impact a community that uh, f- simply through fate was not prepared or did not have the resources to react quickly enough. Uh, these are resilient peoples uh, but uh, we know regardless of uh, of who you are, uh, COVID can hit you. It can hit quite hard so I actually am heartened by mm-hmm. the reactions that leadership both political and medical have, have done in, in the last over two months to prepare uh, but that isn't the end of the story and you know, I, 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 a lot of things keep me up at night.
1: I know, and we we all know, we, we educate people as all the time about the socioeconomic conditions facing First Nations people, and I always talk about the gap, the 6th versus 63rd. Uh, Canada quality of life, according to UN, United Nations Human Development Index, rated 6th, but you still apply the same indices to First Nations people who are 63rd, and that reflects like the overcrowded housing and the boil water advisories, and and then we have 96 fly-in communities. And so, with COVID 19 hitting, definitely it will hit the most vulnerable because of the living conditions, you know, not having access to to clean water and all those things and the overcrowded housing already. So, there is that fear. So, but when you look at Canada's COVID battlefield, you know, Canada's COVID battle, how would you say the war is going, especially it applies to First Nations people?
0: I look at the numbers every day Perry. I get a briefing from my team. We go over them. We look at where the trends are going uh and you know thank whoever you believe in but uh the, the numbers have been quite low uh but it's cold it's cold comfort for uh, at least the two uh, First Nations members who have passed uh, due to COVID, A- and also it is it, it should not be any false sense of security as to where we are, the state of testing in communities, um, and and the potential for it to spread rapidly with 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 improper preparation and execution. And so, uh, no one should take any comfort from those numbers. I think everyone is happy that. That, that, that there haven't been any uh, devastating situations but um, instances of, of communities like Laloche uh, s- surrounding First Nations are of immense concern we've deployed uh, surge capacity in terms of nursing in terms of PPE together with the intertribal authority uh, and and uh, and the government of Saskatchewan to make sure that we are doing proper contact tracing in those communities um, but also making sure that that health message keeps getting out and you know it, it's very hard to generalize with respect to communities but as we take a step back and as I look at some of the communities that can really uh, get ahead of the curve and learn from what's happening across the world and look at some of the devastating stuff that is happening in urban settings, much like my riding, for example, in downtown Montreal with respect to uh, older segments of the population and long-term care. I think there's a huge reflection as how we uh, as non-Indigenous people treat our our elders in our communities coming out of this. Um, there are some uh, important uh, informational trends that we can tease out of this and get ahead of this. Um, so, you know, as, a, as an anecdotal example, I have been reaching out personally to chiefs that have long-term care facilities in their ridings to make sure that they have all the resources they have. I'm not through that list and it isn't, you know, frankly, perhaps there should be more support for for elders in communities, but those with facilities, we're trying to make sure that they're, they're well-surrounded, well-prepared. Uh, because we know it can hit the elder populations quite hard, also the most vulnerable in terms of crowding uh, when we look at remote flying communities there are there are particular needs, whether it's uh, continuity of air service in terms of business continuity continuity of of food security, but all done in a sanitary environment, and also the the response mm-hmm. we do with with me- with medical health and ensuring that people going in and out of those communities are observing all the protocols because again uh, the people going into those communities are there to help, and I think they would be mortified to see that they were the source of spread sometimes so there's no real such thing uh, as, a, as a closed community. People go in, uh, people come out to birth because it's less risky. Uh, there are all these elements of interplay that we need to almost tailor community by community, but also plan and prepare for for what we call surge capacity. That's ensuring we have isolation units as, and, and in real catastrophic situations, which thank heavens has not arrived, um, we can have and deploy the military on rather short notice. Now we do have reservists and rangers that have deployed into communities to help with things such as checkpoints. Um, but when we talk about real full support of of, uh, of the government of Canada with all the tools that it has, um, luckily we haven't uh, gotten into a situation like that. And I. I we we just move forward every day, hoping that we can flatten the curve. Learning from the lessons, not only across um, different countries across the globe, the bad things, the good things that have happened, but the stuff happening in in, in the urban type situations, uh, and frankly, also supporting those indigenous communities that are in and around urban centers that have that back and forth and do have more cases. Uh, but luckily, those so far, the ones I'm thinking of have been able to write, to to react quickly and uh, and arrest COVID.
1: You know, it's a, a good point you raise in terms of uh, northern Saskatchewan, and I'm from southern Saskatchewan, but that was one of the things when the, we, we see across Canada that some of the premiers are starting to open up their economies. You think of Premier Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, and why we say, oh, they're opening up the economy, and there's a fear that they're opening up it too fast, too quick. Same thing could be said in Quebec. And, and so it's also the the point about we don't really have good statistics. We really don't have good numbers. We don't have good information. So it's spiking in the north. You know, just recently, uh, Dr. Veronica McKinney, she's the director of Northern Medical Services in Saskatchewan, said this week that infections are spiking in Northern Saskatchewan. And and so it it becomes, okay, they're spiking, but yet the provinces are opening. And so there's there's a fear of cautiousness, you know, that's got to be out there. Uh, we, We get the whole point about opening up the economy and getting things back to quote, quote, normal. But yet, if we really don't, have good information or statistics. There are some premiers going ahead. What what are your thoughts on that from the federal government's perspective on that one piece about the economy, but as well in terms of statistics because we don't really collect race-based data, we don't have sufficient testing and and so any number that we get sometimes we question. Like even in terms of its its uh, there's legalities for tracking status Indians using our R number. Um, so there's a couple of things there about information and data uh tracking that right now so we have good information across canada and then how does that relay into what some of the premiers and provinces are doing in terms of opening up the economy when in a lot of first nations territories are just starting to see increases in in covid 19 starting to happen
0: well these are excellent questions and and uh it worries me uh to no end, uh, frankly, to, to, to see um, that we've been extremely disciplined as a country in, in flattening the curve, following the indications of, of science with respect to a virus that we don't fully understand. And I think we need to acknowledge that. People uh, talk about preparing and acting, uh, but it's very hard to prepare and act for something that you don't know or don't fully understand. Uh, it's morbidity, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's ability to, to spread. These are all things that are not fully understood yet, and they won't be fully understood until, in fact, we've developed the vaccine. Uh, And so, you know, the reflection I have and I have with my colleagues uh, is how can we expect Indigenous communities to do something that we non-Indigenous peoples are not prepared to do? Uh, which is to stay disciplined uh, and flatten the curve, open up without the full benefit of uh, testing and tracking um, and a real sense that, uh, that we have been able to get more intelligent about how we stomp out uh, stamp out COVID-19, uh, and that has a number of impacts, you know, reopening economies, non-essential work. Um, we've seen some of the the spreads that have, co- that have been caused by, for example, the Cargill plant or, or various mining activities and back and forth into indigenous communities. Um, that is of immense concern. And so the question I have is, uh, you know, if communities take that decision and, it, and we absolutely have to respect that, uh, that they want to uh, stay shut down, um, I can't expect them to do something that I myself wouldn't do uh, in the circumstances with respect to my own people, and it's a reflection that we need to uh, tailor when we look at resources and capacity for those communities that decide to uh, to continue to be closed, or that continue that that may so choose to open up for a number of reasons that they themselves have taken. Um, this is an approach that we need to respect. And I don't have the answer as to what resources and capacity we would we would need to, to deploy. It is very much a moving target. We work with provinces, obviously, and and, uh, and and territories to have a coordinated approach to our health protocols. And that is very much an ongoing conversation as we encourage everyone to stick to the science, stick to the health protocol. But we're not out of the woods. We haven't flattened the curve. And there is a risk without a vaccine of the second wave. We, we did see that in H1N1, a second wave unduly, uh, disproportionately impacted indigenous communities. Um, But again, H1N1, as an example, is now a very pale specter of what uh, COVID-19 could do in an Indigenous community that's affected. So there will be a discussion down the road as to how we accompany uh, communities that choose to go on different paths, uh, choose to close down, choose to open up. But it's of immense concern, obviously, because of the great risk and the inherent vulnerability that does exist. Um, And that's one aspect to it. And as the testing is, this is really important. And and we haven't Mm -hmm in a in a in a well thought through um fashion been able to track with coordinated consistency knowing that this is very much a provincial testing protocol and gathering process, uh, whether someone is an Indigenous, uh, whether they are racialized. And we know from limited data in the U.S. the disproportionate impact in racialized communities that COVID is having. And this is something that we've been tracking. Well, this is something I've been raising internally. And and recently we've announced, uh, I think Tom Wong in a technical briefing announced his cooperation with a number of institutions working to track that data. Now, what we've been able to do at Indigenous Services Canada through FNIB is know how many test, uh, testing kits and swabs we're sending into communities. Pre- presumably, those communities are only testing Indigenous people, but they themselves may not be gathering that data. Some of those data sheets, whether it's an Indigenous or non-Indigenous communities, are coming back blank with just a name and a and a, and, and, and and a referral, which is it is what it is. Um, but if we get more intelligent about how this is rolling out, how this is impacting communities, uh, we can actually adopt our measures and adapt them in a way that is it is more intelligent as we move towards serology which is not detecting whether you have it but whether you've been exposed to it then you can mm-hmm. test how much the community has been infected and do a broad spectrum analysis and that's something that we're moving towards as we're moving towards uh, more intense testing and we're not there yet but we'll be, we'll be able to track whether someone um, if this is done properly is, is indigenous or not and get a rough sense of the impact um, of of that on communities but that point that you raised national chief is exceedingly important in 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 tracking how we get more intelligent about releasing until such time as we uh, develop a vaccine
1: so you're you're working with the provinces regarding the whole tracking of this 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 issue so you're working with the provinces you're working with uh within the department finib uh is there anything else so you like to track this and how specifically you're you're tracking it like you you talked about relationships and partnerships with the provinces some internally within your 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 federal government department, you you're, you're putting out testing kits and swab and the swabs going out. Um, so, question is: Is there anything specifically that you can say that this is how we're tracking it? And do you think your department has all the necessary data points to ensure people don't fall through the cracks?
0: I think it'd be exceedingly arrogant to say that we do. Um, there, there's lots of work that that needs to be done in terms of how we track those data points. It's those head scratchers that we talk about with our medical teams all the time. You know, there, some someone that is Indigenous may choose to get tested at the center in the in the city center of Montreal. We have no way of telling after the fact if that person is Indigenous or not. Uh, the testing kits that are coming through the provinces into communities may be testing an Indigenous person more often than not. Um, they may be non-Indigenous. I wouldn't think anyone would be refused should they go and get tested there. And they and they. Follow the protocol. You know the territories uh, have their own implemented health system, and so they we they only give us the data that we that they send us. In Nunavut, odds are that someone is Inuit because it is a, the, the vast majority of the population. But we're teasing data points out here, and, and no data set is perfect. Um, but it is it it is something that we can work to together. And once we're aware of it, and once we have advocates pushing for it, we can be more intelligent about it. But as the state of the art stands today um, with, with, uh, with respect to indigenous communities, we only have, um, we only have a rough snapshot, reliable in some yeah. cases and, um, and, 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 and needing for, for some extrapolation and qualification in others.
1: Yeah. I think that's one of the things, and to all our listeners out there, possibly one of the things, uh, as a, a recommendation is voluntary, voluntary offering or designating, it can't be a legal requirement because there's, rights and there's legal things you got to be sensitive to uh but voluntary offering like your r status number is just so we're tracked because this is all about getting and and tracking good information so we have good data so we can make proper decisions going forward so that's going to always be the challenge so uh at least it's it's on the radar and we're looking at models that we can help uh, uh, hopefully resolve this going forward um i want to move on Minister, to uh like some first nations leaders have been pretty proactive in uh, accumulating food and necessities in anticipation of the spread of COVID-19. I always um, lift up Chief Todd Pegan from Pasqua First Nations in southern Saskatchewan Treaty 4 territory. He was getting organized and uh, getting materials and supplies in months, months before. Um, and some are allowing essential service providers onto their First Nations only. And some are requiring all who go onto the First Nations after being exposed to off-reserve to self-isolate. So, given that we're all beginning to prepare for this to kind of be a long-distance
0: marathon, uh, what's your advice, or what would you say to First Nations leaders? First, um, national chief uh, across the country, uh, people have 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 taken that health message, and it's 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 through advocacy of uh, of your team, uh, other other advocates, uh, leadership themselves, to the making sure that their their health message is front and center. Um, different communities react differently obviously to uh to uh to, to preparation for um 19 uh, but uh, you know if if i were to generalize uh, frankly the 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 reaction has been uh, exemplary I, I look at some of the, the communities that have daily to the extent they have radio programs are, are on the radio and their health officers are on the radio uh, giving out the latest stats um you know Brutal honesty is it will, will, will will be so important in ensuring that we're able to provide that health response to a health problem. Um, dealing with um, cases that arise, there should be no stigma associated with it. It's just, it's a medical fact, making sure those people are properly surrounded. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it can bring communities together. And uh, you see that in, in terms of the way food is just distributed, in terms of the way people are rallying together to ensure that everyone's observing that social distancing, you know, uh, you know, Bad behavior happens. Um, it isn't something that uh, that, that, that uh, is exclusive to any community, race, creed. Um, you know, people will break those rules. Uh, they're 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 very difficult. But you know, if you're brutally honest about that, and you're able to track a case in the in the situation where someone has done something that they shouldn't have, uh, you can actually arrest that, even though the behavior shouldn't have happened in the first place. So it's always focusing on the health response to the health problem. Um, you know, I, I, I like I, I look at this uh, parking my political hat. I, I I don't need to get reelected. I do need to ensure that people stay safe and stay alive. Uh, it's very, mm-hmm. very important. And I'm willing to, to leave a lot in the line for that. And I think that's a message that is, is shared by a lot of my colleagues in government, um, they, they are willing to as- Dedicate resources, put a lot, take a lot of risks that they wouldn't normally take um, if it were a sunny day and there's no disease <laughs> anywhere. Um- They would probably think twice, but now they know that, you know, why they got into politics was to help people, uh, and more often than not, people are responding in that way, and I see that in Indigenous leadership, um, the small glimpse I get into it, and I see that in the medical leadership that uh, exists in communities, so I want to lift those up, because I think it's very, they're very important stories that you hear doctors talking, and and, and a lot of the times, they're running in the show, and that's the way to do it.
1: Yeah. No, I, you know, Minister, like this, this whole pandemic and COVID-19, uh, we all know that it's going to have a disproportionate impact on the poor and chronically ill and people with ha- heart disease, high blood pressure, uh, tuberculosis, you know, they're also coming to this disease in very high numbers, alarming numbers. And, and in Canada, we know a lot of First Nations people fall into these categories in terms of health care and health statistics. So. Just from your own personal view and, and perception of, of things, and and I know we we always say we have to educate people before things change. Education and awareness leads to understanding, leads to action, and I think this liberal government has has gotten it in the past. And I always take a lot of hits. Oh, Belgard, you're too close to government, you know. But yet we've educated people enough to see that you need to invest in housing, in potable water, in education. And, and, and so I know in the last number of fiscal years there's over 21 billion for First Nations people, but we're still not at the starting line yet in terms of quality of life. And so I always tell people it's just the beginning. It's just a start to make sure that First Nations people have the same quality of housing as everybody else, good accessible housing, uh, good quality health care, and access to the same educational opportunities as every young person in Canada. So with COVID-19, the crisis here in Canada, And has it changed your perception at all about the the resolve or the need to bring First Nations as the Indigenous peoples, our original peoples of Canada, to the starting line where basic human infrastructure and core services, including health service delivery, are concerned?
0: Well first if national chief, if it's any comfort to your listeners, it's not like you take it all that easy on us uh, you're a pretty fierce advocate for uh, for your peoples um, and um, and that shows and, and and it's not like I see you pulling punches um, but uh, I, I do thank you for acknowledging some of the work that the government has done I think it is something that uh, when we look back um, we can be quite proud of but um, it's very difficult to to do these you know, you do a political announcement in a in a community and um, it, it's very hard to do a victory lap when some of these uh, inequalities or problems haven't have been gone addre- unaddressed for decades and decades. Um, it's something you look at soberly and say, hey, this is something that w- that got fixed, but it should have never been the case in the first place. And I think people get that. Um, as we look forward and as we uh, come out of COVID um Nineteen. I I think there are a lot of questions to be asked on housing, in particular Um, the undertaking that the Prime Minister has has made to to come up with a plan to close the gap by 2030. Uh, There are a number of questions to be asked on 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 the remaining uh, infrastructure builds that we have. Some of the most complicated that have gone unaddressed for too long that still need to get done. Um, Education: uh, the results uh, that we that we have put uh, in in terms of. ensuring uh financial i guess equity uh, and closing the gap on education but also the results that will bear and on those the conditions of implementation of self-determination agreements to make sure that education is not only closed in uh financially but also in the right way in terms of devolving the those the devolving or ensuring that uh, that indigenous peoples are exercising that inherent right um there's a lot of work to be done on child and family services uh that that uh lies squarely on on my table but should be on all Canadians minds these are these are these are uh, issues that um create the conditions that you described, um, social determinants of health. Uh, we know the impact, particularly in, in and I'll speak about uh, the Inuit and disproportionate rates of tuberculosis 300 times. And when you talk about First Nations 50 to 60 times, this is unacceptable. And it, it's unacceptable in, uh, it would be unacceptable in any country, let alone one of the most developed in the world. Um, there are big questions. There will be big uh, dollar signs associated with them. Um, but also real uh, reflection on the way we've engaged up to now. I, you know, I've I've seen modest progress um, of this government, even in this new mandate. Um, you know, yesterday there was confirmation of an agreement with the Wet'suwet'en clans in terms of their uh, the protocol that they ha- have been. Uh, ratified by their feast houses this is a this is a very big accomplishment with a lot more work to be done but it's something that hadn't been done for 20 years and what it took was concerted discussion of all levels of government to do that Um, I've seen work on 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 grassy narrows by uh, by the team that I'm honored to lead and the work uh, principally with um, the chief turtle and the trust frankly that was that he extended in order to get an agreement signed to build a a mercury treatment facility in grassy narrows these are these all happened within the last month um and they are very very important because i think as you know they kind of seized the national agenda rightly so in in the last year or so for anyone interested in indigenous rights and they have had some very significant uh, progress acknowledging that there's more work to do um this is slow work, and it's patient work, and it involves dialogue. And I think it's something that I, Minister Bennett, uh, the, the Prime Minister, and all affected ministers are seized of. And I think if we can continue that momentum, knowing that we will make mistakes, but that we need to acknowledge them and move forward, is is something that um, that I'm I'm heartened by. But uh, I, I know that there's a lot more work to do.
1: Oh, for sure. I know you you mentioned infrastructure and and housing and closing the gap by 2030, and that was reflected in the throne speech. You know, and I've been telling people, like, in the history of Canada, there has never, ever been a, a chapter dedicated to First Nations or Indigenous issues. And in this, 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 this uh, the throne speech, uh, it, it reflected uh, legislation on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It talked about a treaty commissioner to be reestablished, full implementation of C-91 on languages, uh, full implementation of C-92 on First Nations jurisdiction over child welfare to deal with the high numbers of First Nations children in provincial care, implementation of MMIW, the Missing and Indigenous Women and Girls Action Plan. Uh, it spoke about mental health and suicide crisis. And it said to, the infrastructure gap will be closed by 2030. So that throne speech is very important. And, and I keep advocating that we, yes, we're focused on COVID-19 and dealing with this health crisis because it's a life and death situation but not to forget as well, there's still a lot of work that's got to get done going forward. And uh, part of that is that infrastructure gap that you talk about. And and I mentioned those things because they are in the throne speech. And, and you can come back as the minister say, well, yes, we're still committed. And I hope you will say that. Um, but in particular, the infrastructure, the shovel ready pieces, that it's not just your department as Indigenous Services Canada, uh, Minister Catherine McKinnon, like, you know, McKenna, in terms of the infrastructure, there's over 180 billion. First Nations should could look at that as as per- participants, you know, because they have shovel ready projects, uh, for example, housing. Everybody has their housing plans, and so the interdepartmental working together. I just want to uh, encourage you to to uh, keep doing that. And what are your thoughts from the throne speech to to working together? To help close that gap um, on shovel-ready projects, or the infrastructure infrastructure gap, going forward.
0: Well, and when I look at the the needs in my department, there are um, I would think, and and I I see it, and you probably hear it from the chiefs that you interact with, uh, pressing needs, and and I would argue very many billions of 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 quote unquote shovel-ready projects. Um, those include. Um, those include things we wouldn't traditionally fund as a federal government, but because of the relationship and 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 uh, and the infrastructure support that we that we dedicate to on reserve and and rightly so. Um, those include schools, hospitals, um, you know, the ba- basic implements of being um, of being a nation. And so this is uh, this is something that is it's top of mind. Uh, it includes also the housing the housing needs. Uh, you talked about the hundred and eighty. Billion dollars—it's a big envelope that is broken off into different communities, including Infrastructure Canada. A, a number of those, and I, you know, I, I think tens of billions have been dedicated in, uh, through protocols and agreements with provinces that have given more support uh, to the provinces from the feds to the extent they invest in Indigenous communities. That's sort of key when you talk about roads, access, or or or, or money that uh, that they would choose to dedicate to urban uh, projects. Very very important given the demographics. Um, it is, a, it, it is a team project that involves us coordinating with the provinces, um, supporting, teasing, cajoling uh, in some cases, but also, also making sure that we have our own envelopes to dedicate in partnership with Indigenous communities to reflect that need. I do not have a full spectrum or understanding of the entire infrastructure gap that exists, but it is many tens of billions of dollars, I, undoubtedly.
1: Hmm. No, there. it's a lot of, and investments is the key word, and I always say this to people that these aren't expenses, these are investments, and uh, if you can start investing in housing and water and infrastructure and education, proper healthcare, the gaps start closing, and really, um, as it applies to First Nations people, that's a good thing, uh, getting First Nations people educated and trained and, and working. Uh, is a great investment for Canada because uh, our young people are the fastest growing segment of Canada's population. So you're investing in human capital and I encourage the Crown to keep doing that. Now, when this is all over, the federal government will have run up a lot of debt. You know, it's going to be close to $200 billion, uh, you know, maybe even more than that, um, depending on what sector of the economy. Like they are all forestry, mining, tourism, oil and gas. It's going to take years to rebound and uh and right now we have an economy built on consumption that might also be slow to recover how are you planning to make sure that first nations don't fall further behind and how are we getting involved as first nations people to help kickstart the economy and even start looking at new ways of doing things um, how can we build back better
0: so it's a Great question, National Chief. Um, I can't begin to answer it. Uh, I th- the focus of this government has been on uh, on addressing that pressing challenge, which is stopping, eradicating, dealing with, preventing the impact on the healthcare system of the uh, of, of COVID nineteen as it as it devastates uh, segments of our population. Um, there are a number of questions that you raised, and I've heard it through the advocacy that you've been a proponent for, and a number of the chiefs. Uh, as to those those needs, and they've formulated them loud and clear. Um, it's not a question of pausing them by any stretch of the imagination. It's just it's, it's a question of putting them uh, to the to the forefront. Uh, you know, I asked myself, we see these numbers getting up. Um, but what is what is the cost of doing nothing? And it is a huge cost in human life, um, and it's probably a bigger financial cost. If you even can think in those terms, um, if you if you don't do anything, uh, you see that in different countries that have taken different approaches. Um, at the same time, the challenge we face as a federal government will will never be able to replace every revenue dollar that exists out there had co- had COVID nineteen not uh, occurred, um, and so that is just a, a sober reality that that we all must face. Uh, the challenge that we face additionally is to ensure that vulnerable populations aren't disproportionately affected and do have those supports to be able to spring forward as we as we jump out of this there's a lot of wishful thinking in there there is a lot of factors given the nature of our country its trading relationships its its historical dependency on on uh, on primary resources that we haven't been able to factor in and indeed, cannot at this time, uh, given the trading, uh, given the value of some of the principal commodities that uh, that, that that we have that we have traded in, um, we can't leave those brothers and sisters behind either. And so, uh, these are all challenges that we must face together. Uh, they're, they're challenges uh, that uh, will be drawn to the fore and even exacerbated should we should we uh, face a downturn. Um, but I think. Uh, Ways of doing ways of doing things better um, have been highlighted, at least in the in, this, in the few five months that that I've uh, been minister of Indigenous Services, and it involves a lot of uh, difficult conversations and continued conversations, face to face interaction, um, and acknowledging a number of the a number of the challenges that we face as a nation. I think we all had that. Um, as a government, hit us quite hard when we talked about recognition of rights, which is a lofty goal. Um, but when you when you meet um, you know treaty treaty chiefs or confederations that have been um, thinking in a different way for decades, and we haven't been listening, um, and you come forward with 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 a framework that is the product of your own thinking or think or someone else's thinking, and it doesn't reflect uh, what has been pushed forward and even embodied in treaties. Um, you face a very di- you face a, 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 a clash and of, of of thinking and views and and priorities and I think it isn't for us to impose those views because we've tried that and it hasn't worked <laughs> and not nor should it have um, but it 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 it's about recognizing that those rights do exist and I think that's what we faced with the Wet'suwet'en the popular support that it garnered and in fact the narrative that. Sometimes got went into different directions, but the seamless thread through all that was recognition of rights that even the Supreme Court 20 years prior had said we should and we didn't do. And now it came, uh, it came back to hit us with that harsh reality that we all faced with, uh, with people protesting and shutting down a very important segment of our economy. Um, these things won't end. Uh, they'll continue until, until those rights are recognized or dealt with in a, or resolved in a fashion that is, is, is both respectful and reflective of the relationship.
1: No, it's it's a good point. That's something we've always um, been advocating is recognition of rights and title, and uh, we always say, how do we move beyond the Indian Act? That Indian Act's been imposed on us since in eighteen since eighteen seventy six, and it's still here. So moving beyond the Indian Act, and and uh, we're always nations, but getting other governments to recognize that fact and reconstituting, uh, or just the recognition that there's another jurisdiction. Because I've always made this statement that everybody always forgets. They talk about the federal government's jurisdiction, provincial government's jurisdiction, even municipal government's jurisdiction. Uh, but people forget that there's the original governments of this land, and and uh, we had our own systems of governance for thousands and thousands of years. And I always go off on on the point about we have our own language, our own land, our, our own laws, our own people, and our own identifiable forms of government. Uh, five elements that international law that respect and, and show that we have the right to self-determination that's our most fundamental important right and so with the wet they're reconstituting themselves as a nation um, you can see the conflict between the hereditary chiefs and the elected indian act uh, chiefs and so there's an opportunity now to really implement the uh, uh, the dalgamuk uh, decision and uh, and i think uh, we urge all governments to keep doing that with the full involvement of all the wet peoples that's what we see happening now and that's a good thing moving beyond the Indian Act, recognition of a right style jurisdiction, implement of treaties according to spirit and intent, because uh, it's all about really, um, uh, I always say, building, building a better country together based on those principles of peaceful coexistence and mutual respect and uh, all benefiting from all this great land and resources we're sharing together. So that's a good piece going forward. Uh, Minister, I have uh, at the beginning, I asked you, what keeps you up at night? What keeps you worried? What keeps you focused? Uh, and I want to ask you, what what gives you reason for hope?
0: Um, you know what? It, it's, it's funny. Someone asked me that question the other day as well. And um, it kind of catches you off guard because um, – you know, I enter every day hopeful. Uh, sometimes uh, I run out, <laughs> but I, every day it starts hopeful. I've I've met a lot of amazing people, frankly, and the 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 nature of the job that I've been asked to do is unique in um, the level of 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 interaction that you need to have with the people. That uh, in fact, I have a have a crown duty to or fiduciary duty to uh, to serve. Um, I meet great people, um, you know, and even. Every difficult conversation has behind it someone who deeply cares about uh, their issues, their people, mm-hmm. um, and it expresses itself in different ways. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good for me. Um, but um, it isn't some, you know, and it it can cause frustration. It can cause all sorts of things. But it, there's always a source of hope, and I think that uh, one of the, you know, frankly, one of the one of the lessons that I learned. And it's it's almost silly because it's um, it, it's it's a result of um, the, uh, the 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 ten or fourteen hours I spent at Tiendanego speaking to some uh, people that are very passionate about who they are, um, talking about in a very very difficult situation where they felt under attack because they were there were there were a number of police forces around them and we went and talked for a number of hours and. Um, there was, regardless of the tension in the room, and it was palpable. And many times there was always a sense of hope. Uh, there was always a, a sense of um, willingness to do things in partnership, sometimes with radical differences. The, the interesting I, thing I found is uh, that once everyone around the table was able to speak their piece, there was a lot of um, consensus as to. Uh, at least what the path forward was or what the issue was that was blocking and you wouldn't realize that if you had refused to meet obviously but you wouldn't realize that through a two-minute conversation or a text or a tweet or you know or whatever across you know a shot across the bow um but it was an interesting interaction and it made me very hopeful for the people uh, that i meet that i interact with um i know that uh, in in the in you know the people that i have met that fall outside leaders traditional type of leadership stu- um, you know, I'm 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 learning Ganyangeha, so I, I I've talked to my teacher. Uh, I talked to a lot of the students. Um, in fact, I, I skipped the briefing this morning to attend one of my courses. Um, don't. <laughs> I hope that doesn't go too live, but I, I'm sure I'll catch up on the briefing later. Um, you know, it, that interaction has been invaluable in meeting people that are genuinely passionate about uh, their culture, their language, um, and aren't. Don't fall in the category of what uh, National Chief Perry Bellegarde is. Um, They're very forceful in, in their own way, but in a very different setting. It also gives me a, a different snapshot of a community and uh, and the values and stuff. And so um, it is uh, that's an important relationship that I, I really appreciate. It is very much. A, it's sort of a personal one, uh, but it actually influences the way I do my job and, and sometimes who I interact with. And uh, I'm very, very. Hopeful for that, uh, but it gives me a lot of hope for uh, of resiliency that I see on a daily basis.
1: Well, resiliency, and even you, you as a, as a, as Minister of Indigenous Services Canada, taking the time to learn Mohawk, you know that that's that's hopeful. I I think of um, Chief Gord, Gord Planis at Souk First Nation. His First Nation's all solar. I think of uh, Chief Macwabi at Henvey Inlet. They have a, a wind farm. I think of Chief uh, King up in Gull Bay have microgrids. like They're they're saving mm. 300,000 liters of diesel that they're not using because they're off diesel power. There's hope in that sector of looking at new ways of investing in the clean, green economy. So there's hope there. And then even on the language piece, like in a, a grade four class in North Bay, Ontario, uh, in a Catholic school where both young First Nations children and non-First Nations children mm. were learning Ojibwe. Like, so the, the real coexistence and coming together of people. That the message was that it's great to learn uh, English and speak English. And, Ukrainian, some someone told me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, Good day. Ukrainian is a beautiful language. So, English and French and Ukrainian. And he's talking up in the on. So, I speak a little Cree too, like all of this. It's like, it's so amazing. So, when you see that hope happening amongst our little ones, it is a good. It's a good thing that there is hope that things are are, are going to happen in a good way for all of our peoples. So, Minister, I'm going to ask you. This is the, the the last question. Is basically yes. You you talked about your fears, and then your hope. What are your last statements or comments before we close off our podcast here to all the listeners? And there's a lot of people listening to this podcast. But as the Minister of Digital Services, uh, I'm National Chief. What what would you like to share to as a last comment to our listeners going out there?
0: Well, wow, look, thanks for that and and frankly thank thank you for having me on um this is um you know what what's been of top of mind for the last two months is obviously uh, making sure that uh, that everyone is is safe uh, people are staying alive and that those are that the the most vulnerable, including uh, our elders are are well surrounded that uh, they are uh, people they have the support they need to um, to uh, to to stay uh, safe well taken care of um, you know that involves making sure that we're 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 following the basic um, hygiene indications coming from our health authorities making sure that we're um, st- Staying safely distant from each other two meters. Um, in the case of, uh, of when you're outside physical distancing, we don't, people said social distancing, but we can still be social without being, uh, too close. Um, but this isn't something that, uh, that anyone should take lightly. And, um, it, it is something that, uh, that I see communities implementing and being very strict and disciplined. And I want to, I want to salute that, uh, this is, uh, this is, this will pass. Um, everyone should be hopeful. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, like you said, National Chief, build back better. Uh, There's a lot of thought that needs to be going into uh, how we govern our relationship, but also how we uh, move forward as a country and as a society, people's living on this land. Um, That's work that still needs to be done. I'm very hopeful for it. Very hopeful for the youth. Um, that are going through this for the first time. Um, And I think all of us are, you know, there are very few people that have seen anything similar unless you're 90 or 100 years old um, and you I guess, been through the Spanish flu. Um, It is of that order of magnitude that we're looking at things and uh, we're much better equipped, um, but not completely. And uh, this is something that uh, is still very much an unknown. There's a lot of fear and anxiety. And I think as Indigenous Services Canada, we've moved quite quickly uh, to adjust some very strict parameters and open them up to make sure that we're continuing that respectful relationship, making sure that resources, financial, informational, physical, are being deployed in the way that reflects that relationship. In a speed that has never been done uh, before, um, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So I, you know, I, I want to salute everyone out there who's who's taking the time to listen to this uh, and to stay safe and and to take care of those who are most vulnerable. Which, as far as we can tell from limited knowledge we have of COVID and its impact in Canada, is really targeting older people um, in closed settings, and that is something that I'm very very focused on.
1: All right. Well, Minister Mark Miller, I'll say uh, Nangola Thank you so much uh, for coming on the Akamemok Podcast and uh, we're going to stay in touch going forward and again, just a a big thank you for coming on this podcast today Uh, Relatives and friends that was Minister Mark Miller who's the Federal Minister of Indigenous Services Canada Thanks for listening to the Akamemok Podcast If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, give us a rating, and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of Treaty 4 Territory in southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Bellegarde, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.